The Nate the Voluntarius Livestream, Episode 188. All right, welcome, 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 everyone. It is Nate the Voluntarist, and today I once again have not one but two special guests joining us. Uh, and amazingly, they both have something in common. They're both anarcho-capitalists, and they both appeared on Anarchast. Uh, and that would be Monica Perez and our veteran of anarcho-capitalism, Walter Block. So welcome and, aboard. And, and Monica and I both have blue shirts. That's oh. it. And I think we might both be from Brooklyn. You're from oh, Brooklyn? Yeah. Are you from Brooklyn? Yeah, me too. Yes. I'm the youngest of nine, so I, I was just the runt of the of the Brooklynites, but we were from Sheepshead Bay. Oh wow. I used to live on East 15th and Emmons Avenue. That's why oh wow. So that's why I would like to be I call myself a philosophical agorist because although I would like to be an agorist, as a Brooklynite, I'm never learning how to produce anything myself. I'm just I just, I wish, but I'm a, a slave to the city. Which high school did you go to, Lincoln? I was in the suburbs by the time. That's why my eight older brothers and sisters, they went to Nazareth and Good Shepherd. They were, it was the Irish Catholic neighborhood, but I'm from, I'm just a suburban. They, they think that I'm a, like a lumberjack and I only grew up in Rockland County, which isn't that far, but my cousins were like, you know any lumberjacks? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, so yeah. So, oh, by the way, night shift. Do you have your uh, armory all set and ready to go in case something bad happens? Oh, I'm ready. Don't worry. <laughs> Perfect. I got, I got my guns ready too. So, <laughs> so uh, with that all established, um, so first topic I wanted to discuss was something that Monica had uh, mentioned in her opening when she appeared on Anarchast and. It was something that I thought we could uh, reiterate on uh, because there was something about Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton that uh, seems to happen over and over again, which I think uh, can help uh, bring about connect. I think it could help others, uh, you know, in their thinking, make some connections and then potentially be like, okay, so this is something that happens over and over again, but what, uh, but what is the result? Right. So, uh, Monica, would you like to uh, uh, kind of give us a refresh on on uh, what you were saying? Well, I think that what you're talking, there were a couple of, I thought, original points in, in, when I was on Anarchist. But I think the one you're talking about is kind of how I came to the position of anarcho-capitalism, which was yes. like my entree. And I thought that I had thought about the American experiment and I thought if there was any ever a time where you could have an experiment in self-limiting governments, that would be the thing. It was kind of in the, in the um, period of the enlightenment, you had these, these like almost philosopher kings or whatever philosophers who were very well educated in both the practical realities of life and also in philosophy and political philosophy, all of that. You had them all put their heads together from Patrick Henry to Thomas Jefferson and come up with the American experiment. Maybe I'm, you know, kind of oversimplifying, but there you go. And in no time at all, you replaced the original idea, say the Articles of Confederation, which Patrick Henry defended staunchly with the Constitution, only 10 years later, you had Alexander Hamilton in the White House, who was basically, I mean, well, he certainly wasn't uh, Thomas Jefferson. And then you had that, the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists and all that, like almost immediately. And my conclusion was, that once you establish the, the means for this kind of monopoly on violence, monopoly of use of force, or just territorial monopoly on rulemaking and enforcement, you have introduced a seat of power that will always be usurped by the power seekers. And there is, so if, if ever there, that's why people want a constitutional convention, whatever I'm saying, there's no chance you're coming up 
with a better scenario, a better experiment than the one that we saw turn into this, which is no better than Canada or Australia or the ones who didn't have it. And, and I just feel like, you know, at any point in time, from the Civil War to uh, World War I Wilson or um, Lincoln, there will always be a turning point where somebody usurps the power, the seat of power that you had established and, and thought that a piece of paper could defend. So was that, was that Nate, what you were thinking? Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, it looks like a Walter uh, uh, got something. Was it? Was there like a uh, something that came Reference? to mind? Yeah. Yes. Uh, when um, when Monica was speaking, uh, she said that uh, the U.S. is no better than Canada or Australia or some other. Well, places. not very different. Well, similar. Uh, not uh, much better. Uh, whereas at one time we were. And uh, one of the books I wrote is this thing called um, Economic Freedom in the World. And what we did is we rated the economic freedom of every country in the world. And uh, this was in 1996. And in 1996, I think uh, the U.S. was number four. Let me see. Yeah, U.S. The, the order of economic freedom, and this is just economic freedom, not just not also political freedom. The ranking was Hong Kong, New Zealand, Singapore, and the U.S. is fourth. Switzerland, five, United Kingdom, six, Canada, uh, tied for six, um, Australia, eighth. And now, after Obama for eight years, uh, the U.S. is something like 16. I don't have mm -hmm. uh, exact data, but uh, Monica's point is very well taken, at least uh, supported empirically in this way, uh, because... Um, Canada and Australia and some of those are very, very close to us, whereas we were fourth. Well, the fourth is pretty good because, you know, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Switzerland are very, very good. So fourth, you know, fourth out of about 110 countries is very decent. But now I think we're something like 16th, and a lot of other countries have crept ahead of us. So uh, Monica's point is uh, very well taken. And, uh, it's quite an accomplishment to have such a big place that has so many competing interests and such a major prize to still be able to hold one's own after all that time. And this is why Hoppe really spoke to me with Democracy the God That Failed is that I, I thought like, what was that turning point? What was it? And I had concluded, people say anywhere from Lincoln to LBJ, but I had concluded it was World War I, like that was it. And it had ended this, um, it, it just was the turning point for our country and for a lot of reasons around that time, probably the Fed, the IRS, but that was just felt like the pivotal moment and uh, so when you go back and look at that, it lasted that long. And then now, you know, it lasted much, much longer. So I have to wonder what was, you know, what really, what were the difference makers? And I guess for me, I feel like it is education and thought and the media and just the way that oh, since that time, you know, that was like the, the turning point, but it took this long for people to really forget the principles of our country. And that's why I kind of, and I, I know that you have supported Trump in a way, um, and I, uh, I get that, but I feel like the, they, we, ha we still had Ron Paul. You know, we still had Ron Paul, who, who Napolitano once introduced as the Thomas Jefferson of our time. But then I think that truly, that, that continuing appreciation for the American experiment was such a threat to the establishment left and right that they took that kind of zeitgeist or whatever and they transformed it into Trump support, which masked the ideology with you know, emotion kind of brought identity politics to the right and it took the energy of the ideology. And I, so I really feel, even though I, I stand by my statement, I feel like it took this long and a lot of concerted effort to really destroy our defense of the American experiment. Mm -hmm. I think you make a very good point. And as to my support for Donald Trump, it's only vis-a-vis -vis Biden or vis-a-vis -vis Hillary. Yeah, no, I get it. I'm not criticizing. 
Right. Well, I just wanted to make it clear that, um, you know, if it was a choice between Ron Paul and, and Donald Trump, you know, there'd be no question. I mean, Ron Paul is, is magnificent. And Rand Paul isn't so bad either. Uh, he's very good. But um, uh, my idea, uh, I started this group um, uh, with the Don Miller and Ralph Rako in 2015, Libertarians for Trump, mainly to stop Hillary. And the idea was that if you were in a, a blue or a red state, where either Donald doesn't need your vote or uh, is going to win anyway with, your, with the vote of a libertarian, well, uh, then vote for um, uh, Gary Johnson or in this time, uh, Joe Jorgensen. But if you're in a purple state, and uh, now it's really important to distinguish between Hillary and Donald or Biden and uh, Trump. Well, now the libertarian should, you know, vote for the lesser of two evils. And I've run into a lot of disagreement on the part of some libertarians who say, well, the lesser of two evils is evil, uh, which is true. But still, uh, you, you want lesser evil. Uh, and, you know, um, if we had a choice of no evil or lesser evil, we'd pick no evil. But the choice was not no evil versus lesser evil. It was a choice between more or less evil. And I, I go with less evil. I, I do wonder about, I mean, I understand obviously that position. It's totally valid in my opinion, but I do, I do wonder sometimes if the, if even that kind of like isolated, simple gaming isn't, um, doesn't really, it's almost like the question of uh, pragmatism versus principles. On a long enough timeline, pragmatism is principle, I think. And, and so if maybe if we had had Hillary, the people on the right who accepted $4 trillion deficits without adequate, even, even if you wanted to just be pure pragmatism, you don't have a cost benefit analysis on the science and on the economic devastation, yet Trump signed those deficits, which, which actually empowered the blue states to lock people down where the red states a lot of times weren't really. So I, people say that like we'd be worse off with Hillary. I'm like, I'm not sure because the resistance might have been galvanized. And, and I did want to point out the thing with Joe Jorgens, which I cannot believe people aren't talking about this, that in those places where it's extremely marginal, like the margin is very narrow, like in Michigan and Wisconsin and stuff, she, and I think maybe even in Georgia, she was the difference maker. Did, did, I haven't heard anybody notice that. I tried to do the math over and over again. It's like, actually, if all of those people were Trump people, and I would think that the majority would be, or maybe not vote at all. So maybe it wasn't. But it was close enough that that 1% would have made the difference. And I, I'm not sure that that certainly is more likely to backfire and get people mad at you than it is to be like, see, libertarians can make a difference, you know, because, so I, just, I think, it, you know, you could game it and still not, you know, your, your idea would have prevented that. That's true. And, and you're quite right that whenever we, we libertarians um, exceed the difference between the major parties, we get on the map in a way that we wouldn't otherwise be on the map. Uh, that's absolutely true. And it, it's true that um, my, um, pragmatic advice would uh, reduce that ability. Uh, and you're also right, who knows, maybe we would have been better off had Hillary been in power for uh, four or possibly eight years. It's very difficult to tell because, you know, there, there are points on one side and points on the other side. But from a um, uh, deontological point of view or a point of rights, I think it's much more clear. Uh, than from a strategic uh, or a pragmatic point of view, because uh, there's, you know the example I use is we're all slaves, and the owner of us uh, tells us we can have either overseer goody or overseer baddie, and overseer goody is going to beat us up once a month, and overseer baddie is going to beat us up every day. And, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, let's pick overseer goody for God's sakes, because you know uh, some of us will die from overseer baddie, uh, and there's nothing wrong. I mean, look, if a hold-up man comes up to you with a gun and says, um, uh, either give me a $100 bill or a $10 bill, well, you give him a $10 bill. Uh, uh, and, and nobody should say, well, you're violating libertarian principle by, by not giving him the $100 bill. So I think uh, uh, deontology or rights are much clearer than strategy and tactics and, and pragmatism. And you, you might be right. You know, maybe we would have been better off had Hillary been in and everyone would have saw the um, evil of Hillary. 
on the other hand, my prudential judgment is the opposite way. I think we would have been worse. My prudential judgment says that Biden will be a disaster and Bernie Sanders and AOC will control the levers and we're just going to go down, down, down. And I don't see any upside, but I, you know, I could be wrong on that. Maybe, maybe there will be such disgust at this that we'll, you know, go to Rand Paul in 24. Who knows? Yeah, I always call it the St. Peter test that you have to answer, you know, for your votes and everything else on your judgment day and what's your argument going to be. And I always joke, like, he's going to say, did you vote for evil? And you're going to say, well, I voted for the lesser of two evils. But I, that is kind of tongue in cheek in that it's, I mean, I agree. You can't, I mean, for me, I always overthink, but it, it, I then, you know, I then peel it back and say, like, even with the voting, are you validating a system that's kind of inherently fraudulent? I always use the example of Syria. So Syria, apparently, I, without opining on Assad or anything like that, I think the last election, he, Assad got 95% of the vote and they made people vote. This is the information I got out of there. So is that, so is that a valid you know, election, no. So if, if everybody just stayed home and in this country and there was like 10 million people showed up to vote and Biden won, would people say that he's validly elected? I think it would be pretty obvious that he wasn't. And so, I mean, I just, I, you could also go down the road, like, is it even morally okay to validate this voting system, which is already out of your hands by the time you get your hands on a ballot? Although I do always vote for Ron Paul, so... <laughs> well, you know the argument could be made about when the gunman comes up to you and says give me your wallet he's going to use that money to buy a bigger and better gun to rob much other people much more effectively and therefore you might say well you shouldn't give the money you should die right but, you know libertarianism isn't really a, um, a suicide pact and uh, I, I think that you know this is uh, under duress yeah, I always say libertarians die by the sword, but they don't live by the sword. <laughs> you gotta live. It's a good one. That's a good one. All right. Um, so, uh, so there was uh, something you mentioned uh, real quick about Jefferson and Hamilton. Uh, you mentioned that Hamilton supported a uh, central bank. Yeah. That <laughs> Right? I mean, that was his thing. And isn't that the beginning of the end? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I that's that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I think um, uh, by the time we got to Woodrow Wilson, he pretty much solidified it. And now we're seeing the uh, horrible effects of uh, uh, the Federal Reserve and the central banks. And Andrew Jackson was the one who ended the second bank, right? Wasn't it him? I don't was know. It, I don't know. I think it was Andrew yeah. Jackson. Who's on the $20 bill, right? I think it's kind of funny that there was two banks and the second one, you know, they were, had limited charters and Andrew Jackson uh, ended it. And, he, and that's why I believe he was maligned by history. I mean, there were mm -hmm. other reasons, but that, that was why. And I, I remember thinking, I can't believe they didn't try to kill him. <laughs> so I looked into it. I looked into it. And Harding too. I think Harding was assassinated. But Andrew Jackson, he what they did try to kill him, and the assassin, the would-be assassin's gun, failed to fire. And ever after that, and Andrew Jackson thought it was because of his attempts or his actual successful attempt to close the bank. And ever after that, he he was armed. He always walked around, not that he couldn't handle it. Probably should have been anyway, but he was always worried after that. And so that's why I feel like the fix has been in on the banking since the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, Monica raises a very important question. You're like, where was the turning point? Was it World War One? Was it World War Two? Was it uh, slavery? Was it um, uh, the central bank? Um, um, uh, was it the, the, the unpleasantness of 1861? It's, uh, again, uh, very difficult to say for sure. Uh, these are empirical issues. And, you know, people of uh, similar background could disagree and each side make good points. I got into a debate with um, David Stockman the other day because I wrote something in the Wall Street Journal about, um, you know, um, uh, what I was saying about libertarians for Trump. And he uh, was very, very critical. And he said, look, um, 
uh, Biden is better than Trump because, and, and, and Hillary was better than Trump and, and his big thing was the Fed and, and the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the deficit. Uh, and, you know, he's got a decent point. The deficit is very bad. And, and look at the deficit under uh, Donald Trump. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not sure, you know, uh, Obama raised the deficit too. And, and I expect that uh, Biden will also. But then again, Trump might have raised it more. And, uh, you know, so for David Stockman, the, the deficit was crucial. And, you know, in my view, there, there are other things also, you know, it's not so clear that it's only the deficit, the deficit and only the deficit and, and the Fed. Uh, you know, there's also um, the fact that uh, Donald uh, lowered taxes and lowered regulations. He was very bad on international trade. And international trade is very important because, you know, the expression, if goods don't cross borders, armies will. And, but on the third hand, uh, Donald uh, did make peace in the Middle East in a way that other people didn't. And, and he was saying, you know, in Afghanistan, you know, we've been there almost 20 years, what's going on, uh, which is, you know, Ron Paulian, but he didn't act on it. But, you know, he hired all sorts of neocon advisors. So every time he would have a little instinctual anti-war stuff, the advisors would jump down his throat. So, you know, he, he's a businessman. He's a, an actor. Um, uh, he's not a, a philosopher. He, he you know, uh, he, he isn't logically consistent in terms of libertarianism. In some ways, he's pretty good. Give him a B plus on, on, on taxes and regulation and give him a D minus on trade and, and the deficit. Uh, but I, I think the, the problem that I had with David Stockman is he was so adamant that it's the deficit and only the deficit. And I'm more broad based. I see, you know, yes, the deficit, of course, the deficit, but there are other things as well. Mm hmm. I coined an expression, the contrary law of democracy, that you're only going to get what you fear the most from your own side, because you're watching the other guy. So at caller, I had a, a call-in show on the radio, and the, a caller said, the Democrats aren't going to take your guns. It will take a Republican. And that has come true so many times since then that I can't, I can't avoid it. But I will, I'll also say that... Um, as far as like the turning point. My bigger point is that there will always be a turning point. You are never, you're always, it's like your idea about the deficits. The deficits will always, I, I always joke like the next, the outgoing president, you're gonna miss him every single time because the next president is, has, is just gonna build from there. It's always, it's like, it's like getting old. I'm like, I don't mind, you know, I look in the mirror I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of getting old. I'm like, you know what? This is the youngest you're ever gonna be. So, <laughs> take it, take the win. <laughs> Ob Higgs stressed this thing called the ratchet effect that, yes, you know, so we, we go downhill and, and then, you know, they have a government thing. Uh, Milton Friedman once said this, nothing is permanent, it's a temporary government policy. So, you know, we, we uh, after the war is over, we have uh, more freedom, but not as much freedom as before. So every time we have a war, we're in a different ratchet and, and we keep losing freedom. Yes. I wonder about that. There's the world, I, you've probably heard about this, the World Economic Forum. Um, Klaus Schwab, who literally looks like he auditioned for the part of supervillain. You know, everything happens on the top of a mountain in Switzerland, which sounds very kind of, you know, bottom of the rabbit hole. And what they, the, I, the Great Reset is something that they are concocting in the wake of COVID, and it's getting a lot of airtime on the left and the right. People are talking about it. And my thought was that they, they can do that. Why, why are they getting so, like, why does the right even give it a lot of press? Why is it in the conversation? And it's, like, pretty horrific. If you look at it, it's clearly totalitarian technocracy. I mean, there's no other, like, label for it. And my idea is you look at it, I don't know if it was like Aristotle kind of haphazard in my like education, but that you, you aim for something much further away than you could ever achieve. And once the conversation starts, any compromise is going to be closer to that distant goal. And that's, that's how I feel like all these, that this, um, you're always just kind of compromising with this so like the ratchet thing, you can come back a little bit from the, you know, you can pull back from the abyss, but you're still on the edge of it and you're never going all the way back to safe, to safe territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you mentioned COVID and, and there's interesting debates among libertarians on that. 
you know, there are issues where libertarians disagree. Um, open borders, abortion, um, there are several issues, um, uh, anarchism versus minarchism. Limited liability corporations, I want to ask you about that. Yes, uh, that, that's another <laughs> divisive issue. Uh, another one is COVID, which is very relevant nowadays. Um, uh, I, I just wrote an article in the Journal of Libertarian Studies where I uh, managed to tick off both sides. You know, one side says, look, um, uh, this is all BS and uh, we should have freedom and, and to be told to wear a mask or to isolate is a violation of rights. And where in the Constitution does it say, well, when there's a pandemic, um, Constitution doesn't apply. On the other hand, there are people who say, look, um, uh, take the case of uh, Typhoid Mary. Typhoid Mary was an innocent person. She was not a criminal. She had no mens rea. She wasn't trying to infect people with, uh, uh, with um, uh, typhoid, which is a deadly disease, much worse than uh, COVID, I think. Uh, but still, you know, we gotta, we gotta get her. We gotta quarantine her. We, we just can't let her uh, float around and spread the disease. It's, it's sort of like if somebody is shooting a, a gun haphazardly, sometimes doesn't hit people, sometimes hits people, you gotta stop them. And uh, the COVID, uh, if you're infected, instead of shooting lead, you're shooting um, uh, disease, we gotta stop you. So there were these two sides. And, and you know, one said, you know, it's all nonsense and it's a violation of freedom. And the other one said, no, 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 the government is justified. My point was uh, sort of ticked off both of them. And what I said was, look, we qua libertarians don't know. We're not epidemiologists. Uh, if we assume this, then yes, that side is right. If we assume this, then that side is right. But, but we believe, as an economist, we believe in uh, specialization and division of labor. And we have no inside inkling as to what is true or not true about COVID. And, and therefore, to get out on, on the edge of the limb of the tree and, and make a, a strong stand is unjustified either, either direction. So our appropriate reaction is one of uh, modesty. And, and, and the other two sides were not modest. They, they each, uh, you know, were very strong on their view. That's why they call me Walter Moderate Block. I'm such a sissy. I'm such a wimp. You know, I don't take any strong views on anything. Uh, no, I'm kidding about that. That's not true. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding about that. But, but I think that, that that's right. Now, uh, I wrote this in, I guess, February when we really didn't know anything. My views now, again, I'm, I'm not a, 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 an epidemiologist. I have a doctorate, but in economics, not, not in medicine or in communicable diseases, contagious diseases. But my view now is, for better or worse, but again, I'm not speaking as a libertarian. I'm just speaking as a, a I don't know, a lay person. And my view is, you know, that it impacts elderly people and people with other diseases like uh, diabetes or cancer or uh, obesity or, or, you know, something like that. And uh, everyone should be free and we should all do our thing. But people who are vulnerable uh, should, you know, self-isolate if they want to save their lives. But if they don't, you know, we're not paternalists. Um, and happily, we're going to hopefully have this vaccine. So uh, it's a very complicated issue. And libertarians here, again, agree, disagree. You know, the joke is if you get 10 libertarians in a room and you ask them something and they'll give you 15 answers. because It's sort of like herding cats. That, well, I have the 15th answer for you. Something sure. I haven't heard anybody else talk about. This And this goes to what I said earlier, that on a long enough timeline, pragmatism is principle because foundational law, fundamental law, what we think of as law has emerged in, let's just say 10,000 years of civilization or many more thousands of years before that of kind of quasi-civilization and whether it emerged as a, an interaction between human beings and nature or God gave us these qualities, we have these principles that have stood the test of time and they emerged in a biological environment in which we were biological organisms. And none of the, even in the worst of times, um, when we didn't, the two big, big reasons pandemics have gotten out of control in the past have been like a malnutrition, toxins, uh, you know, I would say like malnutrition or like monocropping when that was first introduced. And also before there was um, a respect for sanitation, these kind of things. So we should actually be less vulnerable now. And I, I personally think that we are, but it doesn't matter what I personally think. What I will say is this, that because these principles have emerged over tens of thousands of years, 
based on assumptions that we have all lived with and thrived depending on, what they're suggesting is a, a biological paradigm shift that they want to transfer into a paradigm shift of rights and fundamental legal architecture, to quote Michael Chernoff. So I would say the onus is on them to really prove to me that, that the world, the people, the nature, everything is fundamentally different from what we have always assumed and established these laws on. So I, I, I won't take a neutral stand. It's, it's up to them to prove to me that they, that they are that right. Well, the, you're right. The burden of proof is always on he who would um, violate rights and, and telling people they have to isolate is a, viol a violation of rights. But and the, the typhoid Mary thing may not be true. Well, whether it's true or not, I don't care. Hypothetically, it's true. Got it, right. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so, but then the question is, uh, have we as qua libertarians don't know whether the burden has been met or not. So, Modesty is, you know, uh, but cost. then, but then you have the problem of if self governance is possible, if we're not capable of assessing what the government is using to justify their actions, then I would say we cannot have a free society. That a free society is only possible if we are capable of, of if, if our representatives are capable of knowing our preferences. Otherwise you have to trust them and you don't even know how to assess not only their ability to assess those facts, but there's this terrible conflict of interest. So again, it just goes to this idea that we're talking about a paradigm shift. Well, you know, we, we have specialization and division of labor. I have a car, I don't know how it works. I, all I know is that when it's not working, I know where to bring it to. And the same thing with the doctor. If my shoulder hurts, I don't know what to do. I go to a doctor and uh, surely we can have a free society even with lack of perfect information about everything because, you know, different people specialize in one thing or the other. But I, I wanted to take off on another point that you mentioned about biology. And it's interesting that, that every time you speak, you, you say something that really triggers me, not in a bad way, you know, the way <laughs> that you, uh, uh, because we're both from Brooklyn, but uh, you, you talked about uh, biology and, and 10,000 years ago and what it was like then in the caves or when we were in the trees or wherever we were then, and not 10,000 years ago, but a million years ago, maybe. And the issue that comes up is why is it that given that libertarianism is such a simple thing, and it's so natural, and it's, it's so lovely, and, and it's so pro-freedom. Why do we have so few libertarians? Why isn't Ron Paul the president? Why, you know, why did Joe Jorgensen get 1% or 1.2%? Why didn't she get, you know, 75%? Uh, why don't we have a libertarian society? And um, one, I, I just wrote another um, paper on this. Uh, I still don't know the answer, but that never stops me from writing a paper. Uh, uh, because, you know, uh, you might know a little bit and then other people will build on what you start. And if you don't start, you know, somebody's got to start the process. And my answer, uh, the answer of me and my colleagues is uh, sociobiology. Sociobiology is the idea that we are the way we are now because, what, because of what it took to um, live a million years ago. For example, right now, nobody's afraid of a bathtub. Everyone's afraid of a snake. And yet, bathtubs kill many more people than snakes do nowadays. So why is it? Why even little kids, they see a snake and they're afraid? And the reason is we're hardwired to fear snakes because a million years ago, if you didn't fear snakes, you didn't leave too much uh, uh, of yourself to the next generation. Whereas there was no benefit whatsoever for fearing bathtubs. There were no bathtubs. Well, similarly, um, uh, the way we lived in groups of 20 or 30 people, th there was no uh, hardwiring benefit in order to appreciate free enterprise. There wasn't much free enterprise then, whereas there was a, a, benefit, a benefit in benevolence. For example, if we four people are in the same tribe and I'm sick this week and you help me, and next week you're sick and I help you, well, our our tribe survives. Whereas if this week you don't help me and next week I'm not around to help you, then we don't we don't make it. So we are instinctively, you know, if somebody starts choking or is lying on the floor, our instinct is to help them. We have benevolence, we have charity, but we have no appreciation for Adam Smith's invisible hand. 
or, or, or any, you know, why the minimum wage won't work or, or anything like that. I get freshman students who are, you know, profits are evil because they're selfish. And, and probably they were selfish and bad a million years ago because if I killed a, a buffalo and I didn't share it with you, well, you know, our tribe wouldn't make it because next week you're going to kill a buffalo and you're not going to share it with me. So we are, that's why we have so much problems. That's why we're so few, even though our views are, well, not perfect, but way, way better than socialism or fascism or any of the other stuff. So I thank you, Monica, for triggering that in me, that biology is, <laughs> biology is, is important. And it's sort of like, you know, the, the rock of Sisyphus, you push the rock up and it keeps coming down. We keep pushing for libertarianism. And, you know, I've been at it since 1962. <laughs> when I was converted by Ayn Rand to limited government and then later uh, by Murray Rothbard's anarchism. And, you know, we go up and down, we go up and down and, and we're not that much better now than we were 50 right. years ago. And, you know, yeah. I've been trying hard all my life, but, but it's very difficult because we're contending with biology. I, Let me just, uh, oh, can I just say yeah. something real quick about Monica? Uh, you know, uh, you know, she'll say, Oh, Ron Paul scares you? Well, I scare Ron Paul. <laughs> um, I also wanted to auger. I also wanted to auger my own theory in there, kind of my own theory about that whole thing. Um, I would say it's it's not totally biological because if you look at like um, if you look at like the whole span of human existence, um, we've existed at least as Homo sapiens sapiens, we've existed for the last 230 to almost 400,000 years as Homo sapiens sapiens. And for literally, let's say that we've existed for about 400,000 years. For literally about 390,000 of those years, for, for 390 millennium, we were anarchists. Humans were, we lived in anarchistic, pair, you, know, you know, like, um, what would you call that? Band groups, uh, tribes, whatever. And for the last 10,000 years of our existence, we have been extremely authority battered. We've been, we've been hit with authority. We've had kings, dictatorships, uh, oligarchies, theocracies. And for the last 10,000 years, we've been so badly hit with, um, with authority that it is almost in that way kind of, I, I, I would augur that it's not biological to our existence, but it's that um, for the last 10,000 years, that's literally all we've known as human beings is that kind of authority battering. Because here's the thing about it. Biologically, if that was the case, then we would be more collectivist. However, um, when a society becomes, um, when a society becomes overly oppressive or when a society, um, actually most societies, no matter what, I mean, you can almost count, you can always count on this with any society is that it will collapse. It will go into decline. It will collapse. And the only reason we haven't seen that with the United States or with the current civilization that we, you know, that we've seen now is because it does kind of augur towards more of that freedom that we as humans enjoy. But, but we, but we are seeing its collapse even now. And with most civilizations that we have seen, they always fall into collapse. And the main reason for that is, is because humans crave that anarchy. We crave that freedom. And we, I mean, of, of course, for the last 10,000 years, authority figures have been the thing. It's been what we have done. It's been what we have done as a species. So we, so at first we crave the authority, but over a few generations, that authority becomes, you know, I mean, we get tired of it and we collapse it and it goes away. And I would have to say that the only real reason that we have that authority, the only real reason that libertarians are not more popular is for the last 10,000 years, we have had authority figures. We've, you know, I mean, we've had governments, government is the thing to do, but overall humans are more inclined to anarchism because for all of our existence, for literally the for literally before 10,000 years ago, for 390 millennia, anarchy was our thing. We lived in anarchistic um, band groups, tribes and whatnot. And that was our thing. The only, I mean, it, it, here's the thing. It's not as hopeless as it being biological. That's, that's kind of the point I'm trying to make is it's not, it's not hopeless. It's not as hopeless as it being biological. Yes, we are empathic. Yes, we are empathetic to each other. Um, as all animal species, um, as all animal species are, including us. But the only thing is, is that for the last 10,000 years, we have had authority. Um, 
I'm, I'm trying to think of an example. Have you read okay, Against so, the Grain? Yeah. You have um, read Against the Grain. Yeah, I mean, so, well, I was trying to think of, I was trying to think of an example of how this happened. So, I mean, um, the Old Testament from, from the, you know, the Old Testament in the Bible, um, how it says that um, in the land of Israel, it, every, everyone did as they liked. It was basically itself anarchistic. And the people looked around them. They saw that all of these different countries had kings. They all had rulers. And so the Israelis were like, we want a king. We want a king to rule us like all the other kingdoms. So have God appoint a king over us. It's kind of like that. It's basically people, you know, we, we see that happening around us and people, you know, think, well, we need a ruler. These other, these other places have rulers. We need rulers. I, I would say it's more like a group psychology thing rather than it being biological. But that's, that's the only be, thing I'm getting at. Yeah, it may even be um, a third thing. Dr. Black, have you read Against the Grain by James C. Scott? He, no, I haven't, I haven't do you know who that. he is? He's got anarchist leanings. He's a Yale professor, and he's certainly not an anarcho-capitalist. I think he would distance from the, the word capital under any circumstances. But he wrote a book called Against the Grain, which is not entirely, I think he says, in his own field, but it has some anthropological and archaeological stuff that will really change, well, it certainly changed my way of thinking, which was, but around 10,000 years ago, we have this change. You think it was because we learned how to domesticate grains and we decided to, you know, it was the agricultural revolution and we just decided to go do that. But he says that there's evidence that it was up to 4,000 years before that we were perfectly capable of domesticating grain, but it was not a superior way of living. It wasn't healthier. It, was, it did not yield more leisure, nothing. But that the emergence, quote, of civilization uh, happened at that time because somebody figured out that if you have uh, a particular type of crop, grains, that you can store for a long time and that harvest at once, you can tax people. So if, if it's tubers or whatever that you can leave in the ground for two years, they, they'd have to like come and use force on you to get the tubers out. But if all the stuff comes at once in whenever September, they can come by and take their half and they can put it in silos. And he even goes so far as to say, writing and all of that was all emerged just as a way of accounting. And I then established a hashtag, all states are slave states because basically the civilization emerged solely to, to steal the labor and, and domesticate human beings. And I just, this was a fairly, I read it fairly recently. It really changed, you know, the kind of like framework. I look around at these things, but I, I really want to read what you wrote about the sociobiology thing, because I've also thought like love is selfish. I feel like love is not selfish. Like love is totally selfish. If, if there, you could, you know, I'm a practicing Catholic for, um, you know, although I'm, I'm a very, very bad Catholic. <laughs> I just, it's kind of a default <laughs> position. But, um, but my point is that the idea of love isn't, it, it would, it, it could be explained not because like that's what God wants, but because human beings had, it's insurance. Love is insurance. So everybody's healthy. Everybody loves each other. Everybody gives whatever. And you're like, I have more than that guy. But you know, right around the corner, you're breaking your leg. So you want that guy to think that you would have given him some of your food when he breaks his leg because you might be SOL until it gets to the point where your silo is super huge and you can totally defend it, that you can be a complete a-hole. And I think we see that in the world today. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's a whole, uh, uh, go ahead, Nate, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I just wanted to mention we're about 15 minutes away and there was another topic I wanted to discuss, but unfortunately we don't have enough time. Oh, so, I'm sorry. Oh, we're on a time limit? Oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, so we're trying to keep it at a one-hour show. So, um, uh, Walter, uh, you can go ahead and make your point, and then uh, Monica has a question for you, so we'll skip to that. Maybe we can always do your subject some other time. Yeah, 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 I'll save it. Um, uh, what I was going to say is that um, uh, with regard to collectivism and authoritarianism, I have uh, just a verbal dispute. Uh, in my view, there's nothing wrong with collectivism. It's whether it's voluntary or not. 
if you have a kibbutz or a, you know a commune and people want to share, you know, God bless them, as long as it's voluntary. And in terms of authoritarianism, again, it's just a verbal dispute. I used to play in an orchestra. I played the violin. I'm sort of a hit violinist. If you hate your neighbor, you hire me to play near his house, and I go squeak, squeak. Uh, but the wind players, they told them when to breathe. And that's pretty authoritarian. I mean, if you play the uh, the clarinet and you breathe at the wrong time, you know, the conductor will yell at you for breathing at the wrong time. But the point is it was was voluntary. Now, there is a whole literature on when did we go bad? And again, turning points. You know, people say, well, when when we had the bow and arrow, did this help uh, the people or did this help the, the rulers? When we got the crossbow, did this help the rulers? How about the stirrup for horses? Because now horses were better able to be offensive. The internet. The internet, um, uh, gunpowder. And um, my reading of that whole literature is... it, it um, we we stay uh, we stay level, namely uh, there's no turning point that moved us towards so much freedom that we can see it obviously, and nor is there any turning point uh, in terms of new technology, war technology that moves us in the other direction. Yes, it helped this way. How about armor? Uh, did, did that help the rulers or the, the other people? Well, it certainly helped the conquistadores against the um, the people in, in the new world. And then the, there's this whole thing about um, uh, Jared Diamond. Why is Guns, it that? Germs, uh, and steel. Yeah, yeah. Why is it that certain civilizations did better? And and his analysis is geographical, namely um, if you have a north-south axis like Africa, or uh, the New World, the uh, North and, and South America, that's no good because uh, the key is to have longitude, not uh, latitude, not longitude. Why? Because the grain, you know, if I discover something with grain and I'm in New York, it, it, it can go all the way to California uh, with the same weather, but it's only 3,000 miles. Whereas you go from uh, Portugal to Japan and it's, I don't know, 15,000 miles or some 12,000 miles. Uh, so you, you get much more of an advantage. That's why the, the Spaniards went to, the, to uh, South America, not the South Americans going to Spain and conquering them. But I wanted to get back to this um, sociobiology thing. I, I think that um, biology is very, very important. It's not just benevolence. It's also uh, rulers. I don't think we had anarcho-capitalism for um, uh, 390,000 years or anything like that. Certainly not libertarian anarchism. Uh, if you just look at uh, the, the way the bonobos or the monkeys or, or the, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, the uh, gorillas act, there's always a, a chief guy and he's sort of the ruler and he rules everybody else and I think that's not anarcho-capitalism that's not freedom he's the ruler and yet there were reasons for survivability why we needed a ruler because you know he would impose cooperation and the only way to, to fight the elephant or the bear is all 50 members of the tribe have to work together and, and without a ruler you know it's sort of like herding cats so um, uh, there were benefits in having this so we are hardwired to obey uh, you know, they say wear a mask and, and most people wear masks. Oh, it's a few people that, that don't, but uh, uh, we're a nation of sheep in many ways. And I think that comes from biology. But I, I certainly don't think that uh, for uh, eons of time, we had anarcho-capitalism. And then all of a sudden, um, uh, uh, 10,000 years ago, um, uh, things went bad because of um, technology or grain or, or geography or whatever. Um, I would I would not say anarcho-capitalism. I would just say it, just basic anarchism. Just not not really. It, it wouldn't. I wouldn't really no count it. And yeah, yeah, kind, kind of like that. Basically, just I wouldn't say it was like anything like ANCAP or agorist or even like anarcho so quote unquote anarcho-communist or mutualist. Um, I would just say it was just basic anarchism that we had. It wasn't like really any with any prefixes behind it. Um, but I mean, that was the point I was making is that like, um, is, is it was kind of just more of a basic anarchist setup and w- without, without any real, without any real economic uh, prefixes behind it. Mm-hmm. But okay. there was, uh, there was a sort of a government because if I'm the head man and I rule you and I get all the women and all that, that's, that, that, that's, you know, not anarcho-capitalism, not even, uh, uh, sorry, not, an- it's not even anarchism because I'm in effect a government. I'm ruling people. I'm, I'm ordering people around, and uh, so I, 
I mean, there are so many different anarchisms. There's Chomsky's anarchism and the Bakunin's anarchism. But, you know, for me, the only true anarchism is uh, laissez-faire anarchism or free market anarchism or um, uh, anarcho-capitalism. And, and there certainly wasn't that. And we agree on that. But even whether there was anarchism, I mean, anarchism means, you know, the ideal of what we really want is uh, we're not against government. We just want uh, 700 billion, uh, 7 billion, and uh, we want 7 billion governments. Each one of us has our own government and we each run ourselves. And, you know, if you ask a girl for a date, you can't ask a girl for a date. You have to get your foreign minister to ask her foreign minister. Yeah. If you've got a date with her. <laughs> yeah, sovereignty, <laughs> sovereignty, citizen sovereignty. So, you know, yes, we, exactly. we, want, we want uh, 7 billion uh, sovereigns, and and we didn't have that during the caveman days. People were not sovereign. Uh, men were ordering women around. The caveman was dragging the woman by the hair. There was rape. Uh, uh, so uh, I don't think, certainly we didn't have anarcho-capitalism. I don't even think we had anarchism because we had rule of uh, unjustified rule. I mean, what is anarchism? Anarchism, the prefix an means against. And what what is archy? Uh, Archie is uh, anarchy. Uh, archy is unjustified rule. But we had unjustified rule when we were in the caves because look at um, look at the bonobos and, and the, uh, the other, even the horses. You know, there's a chief horse and he uh, bosses the other horses around. Uh, so I, I think we were more like that. But uh, it's now um, 1155 and I've got another appointment at 12 o'clock, so I've got to get off. But this is really a wonderful discussion and I look forward to, to the next uh, uh, just give us a hint, Nate. What, what is the other issue you wanted to bring up? Um, well, first, I wanted to let Monica ask your question, and then I wanted to go into the okay. weekly song and wrap this up. Well, my question, and, and hopefully this will be a way to do this again. We'll save the question. Yes, yes. Which, uh, but I'll give you the hint. I, the limited liability issue is something that libertarians disagree with. And I, I think... Some very smart people are on the other side of this for me, and with, without any suggestion of a debate, I was just very interested in hearing your opinions about it and maybe probing that issue a little bit. Sure. Okay. Well, what you could do is give me all your emails, and I'll send you stuff on um, limited liability corporations, and also th th maybe this thing about biology might interest you. And I'll send. Yes, it to you. that is interesting, and I will send you the book against the grain because I think you'll like it. Sounds good. This is wonderful. Take care, guys. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye, Walter. See bye. you, Walter. Take care. Okay. So uh, I think we'll go ahead and uh, just uh, no drum roll. Uh, the weekly song is uh, Addict by Backwards. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So another Backwards song to add to the list. All right. So uh, thank you, Monica, for coming on, as well as Walter. Uh, thank you, Night Shift, for coming on. Uh, mm -hmm. wanna, and I want to thank you all for tuning in, and please come back soon.